0: Good day, everybody. This is Med Conversations. I'm sitting here with Beck. I'm Darvall. Hi, everyone. We're talk- today we're talking about the flu. Is that right, Beck?
1: That is right, indeed.
0: And as I understand it, you've divided this nicely into into two parts. The first part is very clinical, and the second part is kind of the more epidemiology, which is very exam relevant.
1: Yeah. Okay. So so we'll start off the clinical part of this with a case. So it's eight o'clock in the morning on a rainy Tuesday morning in August. You are the med reg on duty and you receive your first call from the ED resident. Barry, an 82-year-old male from home with his wife, has been brought in by ambulance with headache, fever, dry cough and myalgias on a background of diastolic heart failure secondary to ischemic heart disease. You put on your droplet precautions garb and go in to see Barry. He tells you with remorse that his symptoms started just before Antique Roadshow came on at 7.30 on Sunday night. He describes being struck down over the course of an hour or so with fever and chills, quickly followed by a sore throat and aching muscles. This is some 36 hours ago now, and he tells you that he hasn't gotten much better since then. His wife called an ambulance because he hadn't been able to get out of bed since he fell ill. The distress is evident on Barry's face as he pulls a visibly wet hanky out of his sleeve and gives it a trumpeting blow. On examination, he looks flushed and miserable. A quick glance at his OBS chart reveals a fever of 38.3 degrees, but nothing else remarkable. His throat, although sore, looks only mildly hyperemic, and he has some subtle cervical lymphadenopathy. He seems to be mildly dehydrated. Otherwise, there don't appear to be any other signs to find. Lungs are clear, abdomen soft, neurological exam normal with no meningism. There's no evidence of heart failure, decompensated heart failure, and no rash.
0: Wow, that was pretty much literature.
1: <laughs> so, what do you think he has?
0: I think he probably has the flu, much As... like you, sniffles. <laughs> it's
1: probably unnecessary. All right, so he has he has an influenza-like illness, and it's it's difficult to say at the moment whether this is influenza itself or not. But let's talk about the importance of the clinical um, clinical features in making that diagnosis. So, there was a systematic review in JAMA in 2005 that found that amongst people over the age of 60, the triad of fever, cough, and acute onset has a likelihood ratio of 5.4 for the diagnosis of influenza.
0: They have some very non-specific symptoms and quite a high likelihood ratio that's really interesting.
1: Yeah. So, so when they say acute onset, do you know how acute we're talking from the so, classic influenza? So, this is when
0: you ask them and they're like, I was picking up the paper. Like, they have a very specific moment in time when their symptoms start. Except
1: in this case, it's not so much picking up the paper, but they, they can say that it started around, yeah. but, you know, between 2 and 3 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon. During an influenza epidemic, the criteria become even looser. So if a patient has fever over 38 degrees, one systemic symptom and one respiratory symptom, then they have a 60 to 70% chance of having influenza infection without anything else. Wow,
0: so about that pre-test probability, hey?
1: So, Davo, tell me, what are the classic clinical features of uncomplicated flu?
0: So, as we said, abrupt onset is key. And then the fever, the headache, the myalgia, the general malaise, and the non-productive cough. They're the kind of questions I typically ask for if that's what I'm hunting for.
1: So, sore throat, nasal discharge is also consistent with that. What about sneezing?
0: Sneezing actually makes influenza less likely. I don't think I've ever asked someone about their sneezing, but maybe I should.
1: Yeah, maybe you should. So older adults are also likely to get more non-specific symptoms, and young children are more likely to get GI symptoms like vomiting and nausea and diarrhoea. But adults don't tend to get that. And on examination, it's more or less what we what we said with Barry. So,
0: so nothing nothing too specific really. Uh, you might find a bit of a red throat, uh, but usually the lungs are clear. So that's a really important point to differentiate between the flu and some other stuff that you might be suspecting like pneumonia.
1: Mm. So when it comes to tests, there are two reasons to do tests. One is to rule out other things. So in a febrile older person, then you need to do a full septic screen. And in this case, you might even consider a lumbar puncture to rule out a meningitis. Mm. Uh, When do you test for influenza versus just going with the clinical diagnosis?
0: So you tend to do it where it's a sporadic case, right? When you're not in an epidemic, then you, you tend to bring out the PCR and prove it.
1: Yeah, so during an outbreak, which means when there's a higher case of, caseload of influenza in a particular time and place, not just influenza season in general, then you, you shouldn't need to do any investigations for influenza virus. But in practice, you tend to do nasopharyngeal swaps on everyone getting admitted to hospital. And that's mostly to help with infection control, as well as to make sure that you've really nailed that diagnosis. Mm. So... We've we've mentioned doing swabs for PCR, and that's reverse transcriptase PCR. Um, what other tests are there that are available?
0: So I've never seen this, but apparently there's like a bedside test you can do, it, like a rapid antigen test.
1: That's right. So it, it's not particularly sensitive or specific. I've never seen it either. It might be something that is done in GP clinics, I'm not sure. But the sensitivity is about 60% at worst, and specificity... Um, 75 to 100 percent so you need to interpret those results with a pre-test probability in mind Mm. so going back to barry we did an fbe found some lymphopenia mild and nothing really else exciting on his blood tests his chest x-ray showed cardiomegaly but we already knew he had heart failure nothing acute his lung fields were clear now barry had a very high pre-test probability for influenza and you did do some viral respiratory swabs to send them to the lab for PCR. How long does that take?
0: Uh, So it usually takes about 24 hours. We all know the exact time that they get done at my hospital because you can take the flu precautions off. Four o'clock every day, that's when they run the viral PCR. Give them (laughs) them a call and be like, can I stop stop wearing that damn mask?
1: So the sensitivity and specificity of PCR is about 99%. So it tells you pretty much for sure. It's a
0: pretty good test.
1: Hmm. Okay, so with Barry the first decision you need to make as the med reg, are you going to admit this patient?
0: So just in terms of discharge planning, I would say yes, because he can't cope at home. He can't get out of bed. He's at home with his elderly wife. Who's going to look after them?
1: Yeah, so that's already yes. But even those things aside, Barry is at very high risk for severe influenza and for complications of, uh, of influenza. So what features are there that make Barry high risk? And what are the other features that predict a poor outcome to influenza. So in
0: Barry's case, because he's old, as always, that's a risk factor for severe cases of everything. And then also because he has his com- comorbidities of heart disease, he's less likely to do well. So other conditions that you'd think about in someone with the flu where you'd be worried about complications and maybe thinking about hospitalising them. So pregnant ladies, people with Down syndrome, severe obesity.
1: So that was particularly bad in the recent swine flu pandemic.
0: Mm um kind of respiratory conditions heart conditions as we said neurological conditions as well and of course you know compromise. if your immune system's not going to be very good at fighting it you might need some extra help and some support doing that
1: and as always the very young as well as the very old patients with aboriginal or torres strait islander um, origin and residents of institutions like aged care facilities and homeless people uh, an important thing to keep in mind is that the high-risk groups actually vary depending on the strain of influenza, which changes every year. Mm. So you decide to admit, Barry. Decision number two, to antiviral or not to antiviral. Are you going to treat this man symptomatically or are you going to treat the influenza virus itself? So I'd give
0: him some Tamiflu, mostly because he's within the 48 hours.
1: Yeah, so so you wouldn't wait for that flu swab to come back?
0: No, he's got such a high pretest probability.
1: Yeah, so there, there are two reasons to consider Hmm, easy for me to say. There are two reasons to consider commencing antivirals, individual benefit and to reduce disease transmission. So in Barry's case, he is at risk of poor outcomes. So the individual benefit for him is likely to be better. And you'd also start treatment for anyone who's sick enough to require admission to hospital. With regards to reducing disease transmission, uh, you'd also be wanting to treat anybody who's admitted to hospital so they don't spread it to other um, other patients, aged care facility residents and people who live with others who are at high risk of poor outcomes from the flu. So um, someone who lives with an elderly person who might be immunosuppressed, you definitely treat them even if they were a 25-year-old fit-and-well girl.
0: It's very good to think about just the, beyond the individual and infectious diseases.
1: You do. So Barry does get antivirals. He presented about 36 hours post-symptom onset um, and he was at risk of poor outcomes, and he was going to be an inpatient. So he got tick, tick, tick on that list. Um, and the earlier that you give antivirals, the more benefit you're going to get. And interestingly, um, even if he did present more than 48 hours later, you would still consider giving it to him because he is at risk of those poor outcomes. Oh, really? Okay. So it's not a hard Th- and fast rule.
0: Right, okay. I always thought it was. So It's interesting because most, most inpatients would probably deserve Tamiflu then. I suppose so. Yeah, because most of them will have comorbidities. Most of them will be old.
1: Mm. Okay, so there are two classes of antivirals that are active against influenza. Do you know what they are?
0: So the one that we tend to use most is a neuraminidase inhibitors. So that's oseltamivir or Tamiflu is the brand name. Or xanamivir is the other one, but we don't tend to use that so much in Melbourne.
1: So neuraminidase inhibitors are active against influenza A and B, and we'll tell you more about the categories later.
0: Just quickly, though, they're the bad ones, right? There's A, B, and C, and A and B are the ones we actually worry about. So it works against the important ones.
1: It goes in descending order of badness, so A is the worst. Mm. Um, And so it makes sense that the second class, adamantanes, which are active against only one kind of flu, would be active against influenza A. Mm. So... The adamantanes are also known as M2 inhibitors, and the main example of that is actually amantadine. the very same as the Parkinson's disease treatment. And
0: that's the only context I've ever seen that used. I actually haven't seen that used for the flu.
1: Neither have I. Okay, so so we'll mostly focus on neuraminidase inhibitors then. What's the benefit of treating somebody with neuraminidase inhibitors? So it
0: just makes that course of the flu a little bit less rough, a bit smoother, shortens it symptoms are a bit better
1: exactly and the second thing is it reduces infectivity Uh, and we'll explain that in a little bit more detail in the second half of this podcast when we get a bit more into the virology but um i think something really interesting here is that the the studies that we have usually we always say that randomized control trials are better than observational studies but in the case of um, influenza treatment the observational studies show a greater improvement uh, with neuraminidase inhibitors so decreasing mortality and other poor outcomes. But the randomized control trials don't they show really minimal benefit and and this whole thing of only stopping the durations of symptoms by one day. Do you know why that would be?
0: So this is a really interesting example where the randomized control trial is not necessarily king. Because who do you put in an RCT? You put young, fit, healthy people who don't necessarily need support through the flu. They'll be fine and probably won't even pick up that it's slightly helped with their symptoms. The people that need the Tamifluid, the oseltamivir, are the oldies, and they don't get into RC2. So the observational studies, which does uh, include such patients, actually show quite a significant benefit.
1: So the benefit doesn't come without a cost. Do you know what the side effects are for neuraminidase? The main one I see, as
0: with every medication ever, is nausea and vomiting.
1: Exactly. Okay, so we talked a little bit about infectivity and reducing infectivity with neuraminidase inhibitors. So let's talk incubation periods. How long are they for influenza?
0: So that flu virus will be sitting there biding its time for one to four days, average of two days, right? Exactly.
1: And have you heard of viral shedding? I have, yeah. So that's the, that's the term used to describe the period where a patient is contagious. So viral shedding tends to start one day before the onset of symptoms, and it lasts about a week after um, the symptoms.
0: Mm, the one day before is interesting, even if you're the best person in the world and you make sure you stay at home after after getting it and things are still likely to infect a few people. Still
1: too late. So this period of viral shedding is much longer in patients who are immunosuppressed. It can be actually over one month.
0: That was really relevant when I was on haematology when everyone had no white cells and uh, they had to stay away from their you know, pregnant children and such for up to a month.
1: Mm. Okay, so speaking of pregnant children and grandchildren... Barry has a pregnant granddaughter. Should she get prophylactic treatment? Should his wife?
0: Yeah, maybe.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> is the official answer. So may- maybe does seem to be the official answer. So having a look at the Australian Therapeutic Guidelines, they say that neuraminidase inhibitors can be used for post- post-exposure prophylaxis of influenza, not necessarily that they should be, um, in special cases, so pe- cases where the vaccine hasn't been given or, or where the strain isn't covered by the annual vaccine for individuals who are at high risk of poor outcomes, like Barry's pregnant um, granddaughter, and to manage outbreaks in institutions. So this is particularly relevant for us, I suppose, if there's an outbreak of influenza amongst inpatients. You might want to give prophylactic um, oseltamivir to the patients in the same room if droplet precautions hadn't been used.
0: really important, but really, really uh, easy to forget, but important. We always used to groan when someone on the heme ward was a had a positive PCR for the flu. It was meant we pretty much had to give everyone a Mm.
1: Okay, so so what happened to Barry? Well, he's fictional, but um, in this fictional story, so... he got better and went home. So the typical course of influenza. Well, do you know how long how long that usually goes for? I always
0: tell my patients a week. Is that about right?
1: Yeah, one, one to five days. One day, I think you're getting off pretty lightly, but. Mm. But certainly under a week is about standard. But then after that, patients tend to experience a condition called post-influenza asthenia. And this is this awful, you know, several-week or month-long fatigue and weakness, which can actually last even longer than that.
0: Yeah, some people, it turns into like a chronic fatigue type thing.
1: So we said that Barry got better, but what could have happened to Barry? What are the main complications for influenza?
0: So pneumonia is the most... A uh, common complication, I believe. And that can either be from the influenza virus itself or it kind of sets up a platform for a secondary bacterial pneumonia.
1: A super infection. Mm. Then there's other things that are less common. The, those myalgias can actually lead to myositis or even full-blown rhabdomyolysis. That's
0: crazy. I didn't know that.
1: And then there are CNS complications, complications, encephalopathy, encephalitis, transverse myelitis, aseptic meningitis, and even Guillain-Barré syndrome, although the pathogenesis of that is not very well understood. And so
0: that's all really rare, right? That's not something we typically think about for everyday influenza?
1: No, it's not very common. And also cardiovascular um, issues. There's an increased risk of AMI. I'm not sure if that's just due to increased stress on the body or if there's a particular association, but myocarditis, pericarditis, both of those are very rare as well. Um, Then I suppose going at to delve a little bit more deeply into the pneumonia. We said that it could be primary or secondary. It can also be both. So oh, you, really? in people who are really unlucky, their influenza can cause a pneumonia. And then on top of that, they can also get a secondary bacterial pneumonia. So the the least common type of pneumonia in patients who've had influenza is actually influenza pneumonia, the least common, but it's also the worst. Mm. Do you know the clinical course of that?
0: So they get the flu, and then they just steadily deteriorate, basically.
1: Exactly. And in contrast, patients who have the flu, or who have influenza virus, and then develop a secondary bacterial pneumonia, tend to get better. They defervesce over a day or two, and then suddenly get start to get much worse mm. again. So what's the main causative organism in a secondary bacterial pneumonia post-influenza? So as always,
0: streptococcus pneumonia is your main culprit.
1: Exactly, and about 50% of the time... Staph comes next about 20% of the time. That's the
0: one I always learned was really bad, right?
1: Yeah, especially now that community-acquired MRSA, Um. methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, is actually not uncommon. Mm. And then next in line is Haemophilus influenza.
0: So how do you go about diagnosing this uh, pneumonia?
1: So clinically and also, of course, with imaging. So on a chest X-ray, you can see a bilateral reticular pattern of opacity, which may or may not come with a superimposed consolidation.
0: So the reticular, reticular nodular opacity—that's more the primary pneumonia, right? The influenza pneumonia.
1: Yes, yes. So sorry, these are. This is the imaging in a primary influenza pneumonia. Yeah. And and even without any bacterial infection, you can actually get focal areas of consolidation. Oh, right. Okay. But less commonly, yeah. and on a on a CT, it's a little bit um, non-specific with ground glass changes and perhaps some subpleural consolidation or peribronchovascular consolidation. Mm. Okay, so to summarise so far, this is just taking us to the end of the first half of this podcast looking at the clinical side of influenza. An influenza-like illness is probably influenza if it's occurring during a flu outbreak. What's the most sensitive specific test?
0: So nasopharyngeal swab PCR. So that's not a blood test as is sometimes ordered. It's always a nasopharyngeal
1: PCR Exactly. Reverse transcriptase PCR. Antivirals are of limited use, but you should give them to people with the flu who are at risk of poor outcomes or people who have close contacts who are similarly at risk of poor outcomes. If you give them, give them early. Mm. The most common complication?
0: Pneumonia.
1: And the most common causative organism?
0: Streptococcus pneumoniae.
1: And the most severe type of pneumonia?
0: So primary influenza pneumonia, which you see those reticular nodular opacities on chest X-ray with... Awesome. So that's the clinical part done. So now we're going to wade into the more exam type part, the epidemiology.
1: Which I think is fascinating, and I hope you do too. Okay, so those non-clinical things are the types of influenza, what on earth everyone's talking about with pandemics versus epidemics versus outbreaks, and antigenic shift and drift. First of all, I would like to go back to some history. Do you know what happened in 1918, Davo?
0: World War One was going on, I believe. Anything yep.
1: else? <laughs> so around the same time as World War One was wrapping up, there was the Spanish flu. It was a pretty big deal. 20 to 40% of the whole world's population got it, and 50 million people died. So there was actually more than the number of people who died in World War One. Wow. Um, and also more than four years of the bubonic plague. So it was the last big plague that humanity had.
0: And um, so what happened if you were in medical school at that stage?
1: So funny you should ask this, <laughs> but... So they had such a shortage of doctors, particularly in comparison to this incredible number of people who were unwell, that they actually closed down the third and fourth year classes. And these poor medical students and nursing students were just assigned jobs. You are now a doctor. You are now a nurse. Damn. Yep, so maybe that explains why so many people died. So so the interesting thing about the Spanish flu is the mortality rate was actually highest amongst those aged 20 to 50 years old, which is completely the opposite to what I was saying earlier about the very young and very old. And I think that really reinforces the fact that epidemiology varies depending on the strain of the flu. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about Spanish flu. Is that influenza A, B, or C?
0: I'm going to guess
1: A. Yeah, so as we as we mentioned earlier, influenza A is the one that tends to be the worst, mm. B is sort of in the middle, C is usually asymptomatic. So influenza viruses are single-stranded orthomyxoviruses, and they've got an enveloped RNA. The generation titles of A, B, and C are based on the protein antigens. So there's two of those, the H and the N. Mm. Um, so with influenza B... Outbreaks do happen, but they tend to be a little bit less extensive. So what kind of groups do you think would be getting, uh, would be subject to these kind of influenza B outbreaks?
0: So imagine if it's, if it's less extensive than kind of smaller groups like schools and hospitals and stuff.
1: Exactly, yeah, so in, in institutions. And the reason that influenza B doesn't cause those huge, huge pandemics is that there's less antigenic variation. So what is that?
0: So how shifty it is, how much you can trust it? Uh,
1: Yes, sort of. (laughs) How
0: drifty it is.
1: Yeah, so antigenic drift is when the viral proteins, those H's and N's, change a little bit. So they don't change their numbers. If it was called H1N1 last year, it'll still be H1N1 this year, but they might have changed a little bit. And that's what causes outbreaks and epidemics. And that's the reason that the flu vax has to change every year because there's a little bit of antigenic drift. Mm.
0: A couple that drifts apart gradually, exactly. Rather than the traumatic shift of a breakup.
1: So the antigenic shift is more of the divorce, um, <laughs> and then the changed partners. I think we can probably we can lose the analogy now. Um, so antigenic shift is when the proteins change a lot, mm. and it's usually because uh, it's an animal virus that's changed and adapted to humans, or there's a mixing a genetic reassortment, um, mixing an avian type or swine virus with a human virus. And these antigenic shifts are the ones that cause pandemics. So now I'm going to talk briefly about what those membrane glycoproteins are, the H and the N. Do Do you know what H stands for? No. So it's hemagglutinin. Right. And that one is involved in cell attachment. Don't worry too much about that. N is the one that ends up being more clinically relevant. So neuraminidase. And that is responsible for helping to release the virus after it's been replicated.
0: So that's why we like to give Tamiflu to people who want to limit the viral shedding, right? We want to limit how contagious they are. Exactly.
1: So Tamiflu is oseltamivir and that's a neuraminidase inhibitor. So that all links back. It makes a bit more sense now. So you hear in the news all about H1N1 and all these H's and N's. Only influenza A is classified into those kind of subtypes, according right. to the H and N. So, Spanish influenza was an influ- influenza A, H1, N1. Was it a pandemic or an epidemic? Given that,
0: what did you say, like 60% of the world's population had it, I'm going to go pandemic.
1: So, what does that mean? What's a pandemic?
0: So that's, that's when it's between countries.
1: Yeah, so there's, there's no black and white definitions for all of these words. But if we go one at a time, these are the CDC definitions. Uh, an epidemic refers to an increase, often sudden, in the number of cases of a disease above what is normally expected in that population in that area. So it's sort of isolated. Outbreak is more or less the same thing, but it refers to a more limited geographic area.
0: Like a restaurant with bad chicken.
1: Exactly, exactly. And pandemic is an epidemic over a number of countries or continents.
0: Also a really good board game.
1: <laughs> so pandemics are always caused by influenza A. We said that that one was worse. And antigenic shift or drift? Shift.
0: shift. Because that's the bad one. That's the traumatic breakup.
1: So that has been a question on many a medical school examination as well as physicians training and USMLE for anyone studying for those. Cool. Okay so going a bit more through history, we talked about H1N1 in 1918.
0: This is not an exam question, but it is interesting. <laughs> so, in
1: in 1957, there was a, another severe pandemic. This one was H2N2. So, to get to that, there must have been antigenic shift. Shift, yeah, cool. And, and so, we've changed both the H from H1 to H2 and the N from N1 to N2. So mm. that was a big change, and it caused a severe pandemic. Then, what happens is H2N2 took over from H1N1 as the seasonal influenza. So there wasn't a whole lot of H1N1 floating around the place after that point.
0: So no one had resistance to
1: it, right? I, I don't know if you'd use the word resistance, but no one had a, a degree of immunity against it. Yeah. And that becomes relevant later on. So that's called H2N2, the Asian influenza. And H3N2 came around in 1968 and is still hanging around. But then in 2009, a lot of you might remember the, sp- the swine flu pandemic. That was actually H1N1.
0: All right, Full so circle.
1: Full circle. We've come back to it. So
0: like every 100 years or so, H1N1 just makes <laughs> another appearance. <laughs> about the life expectancy of people.
1: <laughs> so, so the H1N1 in 2009 was actually a little bit different to the 1918 one. It's a novel subtype. Had some fancy numbers and letters after it. PDM09. Oh, 09, 2009. I didn't make that connection <laughs> before. <laughs> and then, anyway, no one could possibly understand d- this. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that originated in swine. and um, And as you'd imagine, being H1N1, it was antigenically similar to the strain that had been around before that H2N2 had taken over in 1957. Mm. So all the people old enough to have been around before 1957 tended to have immunity. So... H1N1, the swine flu epidemic of 2009, was uncommon in people after middle age. Right. Yeah. So again, we're seeing that difference in the epidemiology depending on various, um, depending on the strain and, and depending on history. So
0: is H1N1 taken over as the seasonal influenza at the moment? Is that the fashionable thing?
1: So normally that's what happens, but this time, interestingly, it didn't take over; it added to. So mm. I mentioned that H3N2. Pandemic that came around in 1968. So that's still hanging around. But instead of being.
0: That means I have a bit of a broader repertoire of influenza that I'm used to dealing with.
1: That's it, that's it. So the H3N2 is still around and H1N1 has joined it. Cool. So the influenza vaccine this year covers H1N1, H3N2, and also influenza B that tends to chug along in the background most of the time, causing less significant disease.
0: All right, so what are the take home messages for this part two?
1: Okay, so influenza A and B are the most clinically relevant, but A causes worse disease. Yep. Pandemics are?
0: So epidemics that affect a lot of people in many countries. For example, when 40 to 60% of the world has the flu, that's a pandemic.
1: And they're always influenza A, caused by antigenic shifts, which are big changes in the glycoproteins. Okay, so some parting words that my hospital's head of infection control would probably want me to say, get your flu shot. Mm. Um, if you've had the flu, don't go to the hospital if you're a student there or working there within 24 hours of your last fever or within seven days if you're working with immunosuppressed patients. And as annoying as they are, droplet precautions. Put your space suit on.
0: Put on the annoying duck mask.
1: And we hope that you don't get the flu this year.
0: Cool. Thanks, Beck. That was awesome. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you.